Exodus 24 through 6. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. This is the word of God. Let us pray. Father who is in heaven, thank you for loving us. Thank you for showing us in your word what is honorable, what is noble, what is of good repute, what is lovely. And ultimately, as we think about these things, we think about you. And we think about how you have made yourself manifest in the gospel and in your word. So Lord, as we open your word this morning and we seek to learn more and more about you, help us to worship a God who is truly God, to worship you and not a God made in our image. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as you listen to Christian radio today, or as you peruse the shelf at the local Christian bookstore, you will notice one thing. It is abundantly clear that the Christian church in America has grown weak. The church in America has grown weak. We are weak when it comes to Bible and theology. We are weak when it comes to doctrine. We are weak when it comes to biblical understanding. We are weak when it comes to cultivating a scriptural worldview. But why has the church grown weak? Well, there are many reasons. Lack of sound biblical preaching. A confusion over the purpose of the church. The moral failings of the church. The church trying to look like the world instead of being set apart from the world. The list goes on and on. I'm sure you could think of many reasons why the church has grown weak. Well, at the beginning of a new semester in 1902, at the formerly great Princeton Theological Seminary, Professor Gerhardus Voss asked, asked and answered this very question. When he spoke to the students in an opening address, he spoke almost prophetically. Listen to what Voss said. There can be little doubt that in this manner, the one-sidedness and exclusiveness with which the love of God has been preached to the present generation is largely responsible for that universal weakening of the sense of sin and the consequent decline of interest in the doctrines of atonement and justification. Voss says, the reason why the church has grown weak is because of the one-sided preaching of the love of God. 
It is because of the overemphasis on the love of God. And even more than that, despite the fact that the love of God has been overemphasized, so few people actually understand the love of God. The love of God is completely misunderstood. So this morning, we will be discussing God's love and God's jealousy. Let's talk first about God's love. And I'd like to do it under these four headings. Number one, love in general. What is love? Number two, the love of God. Number three, the love of God for himself. And number four, the love of God for us. And the order in which we are going through this is purposeful. It is definitely purposeful. Because the order in which the world tends to go through this topic is backwards. They assume the love of God for us. The love of God for everyone. And they don't even think about what actually is the love of God. They never think about the love of God for himself. And actually, most people never even think about what is love in general. Let's go through these one by one. First... Let's talk about what is love in general. What is love in general? Well, when I sat down and I thought about the world's concept of love, I realized that there are two major problems or two major discrepancies of the world's view and definition of love. And I'm sure that you could think of many, many, many more, but I'd like to just boil it down into these two major errors. Number one, the world's view of love is that love consists only of emotion for the object loved. We fall in love. We are taught by Hollywood, by romantic comedies, by songs on the radio, by romantic novels, that love is an emotion which overwhelms us. Love is an emotion which overcomes us. We are a shockingly emotional society. Number two, love is self-centered. Love is self-centered. It's all about me. You hear all the time, I love this person because they accept me for who I am. I love this person because of how they make me feel. They love me. It's all about how happy you make me. We are a self-centered society. I will love you only on the condition that I get something out of this relationship. And once I have stopped reaping the benefits from this relationship, then I'm gone. And that's why the divorce rate in our society is so high. Because our view of love is entirely self-centered. Well, I believe that these two major errors in the world's view of love is directly contradictory to the Bible's view of love. Regarding the first problem, that love consists only of emotion, I will definitely agree that love is indeed affection with emotion. Isaiah 62 verse 5, As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so your God will rejoice over you. Love does indeed have an emotional component. 
Without a doubt, we should have affection in our love relationships. But love is more than just emotion. Love also consists of correction. Correction. Hebrews 12 verse 6 says, Those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. So we see right away that love has to be more than just emotion. It has to be. It also consists of correction. Charles Ryrie says, love consists of affection and also of correction. Babies are cuddled and corrected, and both are true expressions of parental love. Furthermore, both are done by parents in the belief that they are doing the best thing for the child at the time. And this is the key statement. Love seeks the good for the object loved. Love is a commitment to seek the highest good for the object loved. When we love, we should be committed to seeking the good of the beloved. As pertaining to the second problem, we see all over the Bible that love should not be self-centered, but rather self-sacrificial. There are literally hundred texts you could choose from. 1 Corinthians 13.5, love does not seek its own. John 15.13, greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. There is no greater love than self-sacrificial love. Love puts the interests of the beloved before their own. Biblical love is self-giving, self-sacrificial. You are willing to lay down your life for the person that you love. So what is love? We'll define love as love is a commitment to give the highest good to the object loved in a self-sacrificial manner. Now let's move on to the love of God. If that's our definition of love, it's that, if that's our foundation of what love is in general, let's move on to what the love of God is. Now Wayne Grudem defines the attribute of the love of God as God's love means that God eternally gives of himself to others. No, wait, wait a minute. That seems awkward. That doesn't seem to fit. That doesn't seem to jive with our definition of love that we derive from the scripture. It seems so different. It seems so disparate. How do we reconcile these two? Well, scripture tells us that only God is good. In fact, God is the highest good. God is the very definition of what is good. Mark 10.18 says, No one is good except God alone. God is good and does good, says the scripture. If you have any questions about that, please review the attribute of God's goodness by Pastor Isaiah several weeks ago. So if God is to love you, he must give you the highest good, which is himself. If God is to truly love you, 
then God must give you the highest good, which is God himself. And that's why Grudem defines God's love as God giving himself to others. So we can combine our definitions of love. If love is a commitment to give the highest good to the object love, and the highest good is in fact God himself, then our definition of the attribute of God's love should now read, God's love is a commitment to give himself to the object loved in a self-sacrificial manner. We see this all over the scriptures. John 3.16, perhaps the most famous verse in all the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that's self-sacrifice, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And what is eternal life? Well, John 17 verse 3 says, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That's the highest good, God. God is loving you by self-sacrificially giving you the highest good, which is himself. 1 Peter 3.18, Christ also suffered once for sins. That's self-sacrifice. The righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. That's the highest good, God. Just one more example. Romans 5.8-10, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's self-sacrifice. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God, that's the highest good, through the death of his son. God gave the greatest sacrifice of all, his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, the God-man, died on our behalf. God gave the greatest sacrifice of all so that we could receive the highest good of all, which is God himself. That is the love of God. Now, just as a caveat, what about all those people who don't get God in the end? What about all those people who end up going to hell? Did God not love them? Well, this, as you know, is the heresy known as universalism. Everybody goes to heaven because God loves everybody, so they have to go to heaven. It's universalism. Well, Ryrie says, the heresy of universalism grows out of an unbalanced concept of the attributes of God. It teaches that since God is love, he will ultimately save all people. But God's perfection of love does not operate apart from his other perfections, including holiness and justice. Therefore, love cannot overpower holiness and save those who reject Christ and die in their sins. Furthermore, universalism in reality does not have a proper definition of love since it only sees the affection aspect of love and not the correcting aspect. Universalism grows out of an unbalanced concept of the love of God. We must keep in mind, brothers and sisters, that the love of God is not God's primary attribute. What is God's primary attribute? God doesn't have a primary attribute. 
God is God. No one attribute is to be pitted against another. No one attribute overpowers another. No one attribute overcomes another. No one attribute is to be favored over another. All of God's attributes are balanced with the others. We must have a balanced biblical view of all of the attributes of God. God does not have a primary attribute. Now let's move on to the love of God for himself. The love of God for himself. So if God is the highest good, and God loves all that is good, then it only follows that God must love himself. That's right. God must love himself. Henry Skugel, in his book, The Life of God and the Soul of Man, said this profound statement. The worth and excellency of a soul is to be measured by the object of its love. The worth and excellency of a soul is to be measured by the object of its love. He who loveth mean and sordid things doth thereby become base and vile, but a noble and well-placed affection doth advance and improve the spirit unto conformity with the perfections which it loves. Now what he means is, bottom line, what you love says a lot about the kind of person you are. If you love base, vile, sordid, wicked things, does that not reflect your character? But if you love, even as we were thinking about this morning in the first hour, if you dwell on, if you love, if your affections are for that which is honorable, noble, lovely, true, are you not also going to be honorable, noble, lovely, and true? What you love says a lot about the kind of person you are. Likewise, God must love the most worthy and most excellent of all things for him to be the most worthy and most excellent of all beings. God must love himself in order for him to be God. If God loved anything less than the most excellent thing, then he would not be most excellent. Say it another way. If God did not love himself more than anything else, he would not be the most excellent of all beings. God must love himself in order for him to be God. But isn't that self-seeking of God? Isn't that selfish? And I thought we just said, love does not seek its own. Love is self-sacrificial. Isn't this self-centered of God? Well, here are three reasons why God's love for himself is not selfishness. God's love for himself is not selfishness because, number one, God is the supreme being of the universe. Piper says, because God is unique as an all-glorious, totally self-sufficient being, he must be for himself if he is to be for us. The rules of humility that belong to a creature cannot apply in the same way to its creator. If God should turn away from himself as the source of infinite joy, he would cease to be God. He would deny the infinite worth of his own glory. He would 
it, he would imply that there is something more valuable outside of himself. He would commit idolatry. This would be no gain for us. For where can we go when our God has become unrighteous? When Jesus said in Matthew 22, 37 to 38, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. God does not break his own first and foremost commandment. Because that would be sin. And God does not sin. Therefore, God must love himself first and foremost. Secondly, God's love for himself is not selfishness because God's love for himself is beneficial to others, not harmful to others. True self-centeredness is destructive for others. It is harmful to others. But God's love for himself is beneficial to others. Brothers and sisters, we are the beneficiaries of God's love for himself. We are the beneficiaries of God's love to display and demonstrate all of his attributes. Let me illustrate. Romans 3, 23 through 25 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace, through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness. So God crucified his son. Why? To save sinners? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. 100%. But first and foremost, God crucified his son to demonstrate his righteousness and grace. God, in loving to demonstrate his attributes of righteousness and grace, gave us the gift of justification. God wanted to show that he was righteous. God wanted to show that he was gracious. And so, therefore, God crucified his son and gave us the gift of the gospel. We are the beneficiaries of God's love to display all of his attributes. We are the beneficiaries of God's love for himself. The very love that God bestows upon us is firmly rooted in God's love for himself. If you have any questions about this, just read a John Piper book. Any John Piper book. Thirdly, God's love for himself is not selfishness because God exists in a trinity. God exists in a trinity. Now think about this for a moment with me. God exists in a trinity. He is three persons, one God. Therefore, we must realize that God's love for himself is actually a love for another. Each person of the trinity loves the other persons of the trinity. And so when God says that he loves himself, he is actually loving himself and the other persons of the trinity. In the Gospel of John, we see the inner workings of the love within the Trinity. John 5.20, the Father loves the Son. John 14.31, Jesus says, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Jesus prays in John 17.24, Father, you loved me 
before the foundation of the world. In the Gospel of John, we are seeing put on display the intra-Trinitarian love of God for himself. Within the Trinity, we have both the lover and the beloved. So we must understand that when God loves himself, he loves the other members of the Trinity. Therefore, he is not selfish because God's love for himself is, in fact, a love for another. I wish I could talk to you about how Jonathan Edwards talked about this as one of his greatest developments in the doctrine of the Trinity. How a father loves the son eternally. Now the son loves the father eternally. And the Holy Spirit manifests the love between the father and the son. I said I wish I could. I actually did just tell you about Jonathan Edwards' doctrine, doctrinal development. That was not planned. But. So that's the love of God for himself. Fourth and last, let's talk about the love of God for us. Wow, it took us a long time to get to the love of God for us, didn't it? I mean, most of the world thinks we should have started with this. We should always talk about this first because, well, God loves us. That's the most important thing. Well, I will venture to say that we will not understand God's love for us until we understand God's love for himself. Let me show you what I mean. Well, in one sense, it is right to say that all of mankind is an object of God's love, for we are made in his image. However, what the world does not understand is that God does not love all people in the same way. God's love is distinguishing. God's love is deferential. God's love is differentiating. God loves the elect in a way that he does not love the non-elect. God loves the elect in a way he does not love the reprobate. The world is so offended by this, the fact that God does not love all the people the same way. But instinctively, we understand this. If I were to go on the other side of the wall to Pebbles, go to Pebbles and say, I love all all the children in Pebbles, you would say, yeah, so do I. We love all the children in the church. But if I went over to Pebbles and I said, I love all the children in Pebbles exactly the same way as I love my two daughters, you would say, wait a minute, that doesn't make sense. Instinctively, we understand distinguishing love because we practice it. We love our own in a way that we do not love everybody. We love our own more than we love those who are not our own. We practice every single day distinguishing love, deferential love, differentiating love. We understand this. Now in the Bible, the vast majority of texts show that God loves his own, his church, John 13, verse 1. And now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He loved his own. Ephesians 1, 4 to 5. 
just as he chose us in him, that's in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. We are elect in Christ, the beloved. Now, here's the key, brothers and sisters. When we talk about election, we must always understand our election in light of Jesus, the elect one. Jesus is the elect one, the chosen one, and we are elect in him. We are elect in Christ. We are elect in Jesus. The father loves his son, Jesus, the chosen one, the elect one. And when we are elect in him, we receive the love that the father has for his son. When we are elect in the Son, we enter into the special intra-Trinitarian love that the Father has for his Son. You see what I mean when I say we must understand the love of God for himself before we can understand God's love for us? God's special love for the Son is what we receive when we are found in him. Brothers and sisters, we are partakers of Trinitarian love. That should never cease to amaze us. Well, that's the love of God. Secondly, this morning, I'd like to talk about the attribute of jealousy. The jealousy of God. And as we will see, the attribute of God's jealousy is closely related to God's attribute of love. But it's also associated with God's anger or wrath and holiness. And we'll explore this in a minute. But I just want to say as, by way of introduction, when I was preparing for this message, I actually found it very interesting that it's quite difficult to find resources on God's jealousy. What I did was I pulled off 11 systematic theologies off my shelf. I just looked through all of them. And the attribute of God's jealousy was only in four of them, four out of 11. That's a little over 36%. So 36% in basketball three-point shooting, that's, that's somewhat respectable. It's not great. It's not terrible. It's a, somewhat respectable. 36% in baseball, that's Hall of Fame level. That's astounding. But 36% in the rest of life, that's not a good percentage in anything else in the rest of life, including in theology. But I became convinced that we should discuss the jealousy of God as an attribute because to ignore God's jealousy is to ignore Scripture itself. The jealousy of God is mentioned in all three portions of the Old Testament. The law, just to name a few. Numbers, Deuteronomy. The prophets, just to name a few. Again, Ezekiel. Joel, Nahum, Zephaniah, and I've given you the references here. The writings, Joshua, 1 Kings, Psalms. It's also mentioned in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 10.22. You cannot read any portion of the Bible without being confronted by the jealousy of God. Then look at Exodus 34.14. And this blew me away. For you shall not worship any other God, for the Lord whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. 
How can we ignore this attribute of God when God says, my name is jealous? We don't ignore God's name Yahweh. We don't ignore God's name Emmanuel. We certainly don't ignore God's name Jesus. How can we ignore God's name jealous? To ignore this attribute of God is to ignore God himself. Now perhaps many dismiss this attribute of God because we tend to think of jealousy as a sin. Out of all the attributes that you would think God would have, this would not be one of them. We tend to think of jealousy as evil, something to be avoided. We think of it as the green-eyed monster. Jealousy is called a sin all over the Bible. 1 Corinthians 3.3, 3, for you are still fleshly, for since there is jealousy and strife among you. It's fleshly, it's worldly, it's sinful. However, what we need to realize is that there is such a good thing as good jealousy, as godly jealousy. 2 Corinthians 11 verse 2 says, For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. For I betrothed you to one husband, so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. So there's such a good thing as godly jealousy. There's such a good thing as good jealousy. Now this, of course, begs the question, what is jealousy? What actually is jealousy? Well, very basically speaking, if you want to talk about it in its most basic definition, jealousy is angered love. Jealousy is angered love. Jealousy is love that has been moved to anger. Jealousy is love applied to a specific situation. When the love relationship is threatened, when the love relationship is lost, or when it's broken. For instance, if a husband has a wife who is adulterous, or if a wife has a husband who is adulterous, that provokes jealousy. So where there is no love, there also can be no jealousy. You have to start with a love relationship in order for it to be angered, in order for love to be moved to jealousy. That's where the similarity ends. What about the differences? Well, in the Bible, we see that Scripture talks about evil jealousy, sinful jealousy, also called envy, and also godly jealousy. Well, Tim Keller, I think, really does a great job summarizing the differences. Keller says, Envious love starts being upset because it has lost love, but ends in nothing but destructive anger. It's all about your ego. It's all about your hurt pride. Love is replaced by anger. Love goes away, and you can even attack the person whose love you lost. Godly jealousy is angered love that stays love. It's not so much about your hurt pride. It's about the loss of relationship. Godly jealousy is love fighting extinction. Sinful jealousy is love gone extinct. Because of your self-centeredness, because of your pride, now you hate the person. But godly jealousy is angered love that stays love, that stays committed to rescuing that crumbling love relationship and getting that person back. So I'd like to talk about the differences between sinful jealousy and godly jealousy by looking at the root 
and the fruit. Let's talk first about the root of sinful jealousy. The root of sinful jealousy. Sinful jealousy is rooted in selfishness, in pride. It's all about you. Sinful jealousy occurs when pride has been hurt, when your pride has been threatened. It cares more about itself than it does the person loved. The best example of this in the Bible is King Saul and David. Saul loved David, the best friend of his son Jonathan. 1 Samuel 16.38 says, And David came to Saul and entered his service, and Saul loved him greatly. So here we have Saul loving David. Remember, jealousy does not occur where there is no love. But when David began to grow in popularity, Saul began to despise him. 1 Samuel 18, 7-9 says, The woman sang as they played and said, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. Then Saul became very angry, for this saying displeased him, and he said, They have ascribed to David ten thousands, but to me they have ascribed thousands. Now what more can he have but the kingdom? Saul looked at David with suspicion from that day on. Saul's pride was wounded, and thus his love was extinguished. His love was angered. Now let's look at the fruit of sinful jealousy. The fruit of sinful jealousy is destructive anger. It is wishing harm to the other person. When sinful jealousy takes root, it works itself out in the fruit of wishing harm to the other person. Saul, when his pride was wounded, sought to kill David. 1 Samuel 18, 10 through 11, and 19, 9 through 10, Saul actually tried to kill David with a spear. So Saul went from loving David to trying to kill him. Why? Because he was jealous. Because he was jealous. It was all about his hurt pride, and it worked itself out in destructive anger. Now let's move on to the root of godly jealousy. The root of godly jealousy. The root of godly jealousy is the defense of the love relationship. It's not about you. It's about the love relationship. God is motivated and jealous to defend the love relationship he has with his people. And here we have the definition of God's jealousy. Sam Storms defines the jealousy of God as divine jealousy is a zeal to protect a love relationship or to avenge it when it is broken. The intensity of God's anger at threats to this relationship is directly proportionate to the depths of his love. John Frame helps define it further. Jealousy is a passionate zeal to guard the exclusiveness of a marriage relationship, leading to anger against an unfaithful spouse. Notice how Storms and Frame both define this. It's not about you. It's not about your hurt pride. It's not that God is up there. He has his, his pride has been wounded. No, God is seeking to defend the exclusiveness of a marriage relationship. God's jealousy, then, is not at odds with his love. It is a fulfillment of his love. God's jealousy is a completion of his love. The truly loving God is, in fact, a jealous God. 
When a man's beloved wife commits adultery, we would say, well, he is right to be jealous. But what if that man just said, ah, that's fine. It doesn't bother me. I don't think about that. I don't care about that. What would our first reaction be? Well, obviously, this man does not love his wife. Obviously, he does not love her. Obviously, he does not care about her. Godly jealousy is proof of godly love. Godly jealousy is proof of godly love. Likewise, in Scripture, God's jealousy is depicted with the image of marriage. Exodus 34, 14 through 15. For you shall not worship any other God, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. Otherwise, you might make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and they would play the harlot with their gods and sacrifice to their gods. To worship other gods is to commit spiritual adultery. To worship other gods is to break your covenant of marriage with God himself. James warns us in James 4.4, You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? God is jealous. He is deeply committed to preserving the love relationship that he has with his people. Now this works itself out in the fruit of godly jealousy. The fruit of godly jealousy is to seek the good of the beloved, the honor of the beloved, the protection of the beloved. Put another way, the godly jealousy demands the holiness of the beloved. It seeks to purify the beloved in holiness. Scripture often links the holiness of God with the jealousy of God. Joshua 24, 19, he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. Ezekiel 39.25, God says, I will be jealous for my holy name. God's jealousy demands that we keep his name holy. 2 Corinthians 11.2, For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. For I betrothed you to one husband, so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. God's love and God's jealousy always seek the purity and the holiness of the beloved. Nobody says this better than C.S. Lewis in his book, The Problem of Pain. A little extended quote, so stick with me here. Lewis says, You asked for a loving God? You have one. Not a senile benevolence that drowsily wishes you to be happy in your own way. Not the cold philanthropy of conscientious magistrate, but the consuming fire himself. The love that made the worlds, persistent as the artist's love for his work, provident and venerable as a father's love for a child, jealous, inexorable, exacting as love between the sexes. The church is the Lord's bride, whom he so loves that in her no spot or wrinkle is endurable. Love in its own nature demands the perfecting of the beloved. When we fall in love with a woman, do we cease to care whether she is fair or foul? Do we not first begin to care? Love may indeed love the beloved when her beauty is lost, but not because it is lost. 
Love may forgive all infirmities, but love cannot cease to will their removal. Love is more sensitive than hatred itself to every blemish in the beloved. Of all powers, he forgives most, but he condones least. He is pleased with little, but demands all. That is godly love, brothers and sisters. So God's jealousy is love that has been provoked to anger by our unfaithfulness, by our idolatry, by our wickedness, by our sinfulness. This angered love is then moved to purify the beloved in holiness. But, remember as Tim Keller said, this is love which stays love. Jealousy is love which stays love. So at this time, I'd like to close with two brief points of application. First, the love and jealousy of God should cause us to examine our love and jealousy for others. Brothers and sisters, this is a high standard. But this is the standard that God would have us to live. When we love others, are we committed to the highest good? Or are we caught up in the world's concept of what love is? Are we catechized by the radio? Are we catechized by the media? Are we catechized by the world around us? Or are we catechized by the scriptures? Think of how you love others. Are you committed to giving them the highest good in a self-sacrificial manner? Are you jealous of someone? Are you jealous right now? Is your jealousy founded in hurt pride? Selfishness? Is it all about you? Or is your jealousy founded in seeking to defend the love relationship? Are you seeking to just get vengeance on that person and get back at them? Or are you seeking their purity? Are you seeking their holiness? Brothers, sisters, this is a high standard, but this is God's standard. Test your hearts. Examine your ways. Secondly, the love and jealousy of God should be the motivation of our obedience. Have you ever thought about why God mentions his jealousy in the Ten Commandments? We just read this passage earlier. Exodus 20, 4 through 6. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Why does God bring up the fact that he is jealous in the heart of the Ten Commandments? Why does he even mention this attribute in the Ten Commandments? The point is, we should not view the Ten Commandments as a list of rules, as a list of do's and don'ts. We should not view the Ten Commandments as a soldier following the orders of a general or a worker following the orders of a boss, or a slave following the orders of a master, we should view the Ten Commandments as our wedding vows with our spouse, God himself. Brothers and sisters, these are our wedding vows with God. 
We are to view the Ten Commandments in the context of covenant love, of covenant marriage. The Ten Commandments are our wedding vows that we took to honor our spouse, God himself. When we get married, we do everything we, t- we can. We do everything we can to avoid making our spouse jealous. We want to honor them. We want to love them. Likewise, we need to follow God's laws in order to avoid making him jealous, in order to avoid provoking him to jealousy because we love him. Brothers and sisters, help us. May, may God help us to love him and to follow him and to honor him in a way that honors his love and jealousy. For he is a jealous God. Let's pray. Father who is in heaven, Lord, we take for granted your love. We take for granted your love and we so often neglect your jealousy. Lord, help us to live in a way that would honor your love. Help us to live according to your word, not just out of duty, not just out of grin and bear it obedience, but Lord, because we love you, because you first loved us. Thank you for the Trinitarian love that you have bestowed upon us. Thank you, Lord, that you are a jealous God and you are always seeking our good. May we live in such a way as to honor both your love and your jealousy. Pray in Jesus' name.